In January 2008, 21-year-old Denise Amber Lee was abducted from her home. After a critical 911 call was mishandled, police lost their best chance to save Denise. But her family is determined to make sure that never happens to anyone else. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. All right, welcome back to Crime Lines. I want to thank Suzanne St. John for help with the research on tonight's case. This story is one with a very layered timeline. We have the timeline of Denise Amber Lee's kidnapping from the point of view of her husband, her father, the documented 911 calls, and the police. But this is a solved case, so we also have the timeline of what was happening in the life of the man who took her and also the witnesses who saw them along the way. And as most of you know, the name Crime Lines comes from timeline. I like to put things in a timeline and walk through these cases so we all can follow them. We can understand what happened and when it happened. So what I did was I took the various timelines of what people said they saw and heard and when, and I laid them next to each other, and we're going to walk through the whole story in a comprehensive manner. The timeline I have formed has been largely based on a 2008 Dateline episode about the abduction, and then the court records about evidence as it was presented at the trial. Let's start with Denise Lee and her husband, Nate. They were high school sweethearts, and they fell in love fast, the way 17- and 18-year-olds tend to do. It was three weeks after their first date, and Nate gave her a promise ring. Before long, they were married and the parents of two little boys, Noah and Adam. In January 2008, Denise was a 21-year-old stay-at-home mom to her boys, who at the time were two years old and six months old. Nate was juggling a few jobs to bring in enough income to support them. His main day job was as a meter reader for the electric company. The couple lived in a rented house in a half-finished development out in Northport, Florida. This is a suburb of Sarasota, so we're talking the Gulf side of the state of Florida. Northport is one of those cities that really exploded in the 1990s and early 2000s with that big housing boom we had. So it's a mostly residential area. It's still half rural-ish, or it used to be, but it's kind of filled with these newer houses from the boom. Now, the downside was the housing market had crashed after builders had built and started building a lot of these houses. So there were a lot of vacant houses in the area after this crash. It's a great place to get a decent-sized house for not a ton of money. On January 17th, 2008, which was a Thursday, Nate left for work in the morning as usual. At 11.09, Nate called home just to see how Denise and the kids were doing. It was just that usual lunch break, chat, check-in. The call lasted probably around five minutes. 
Nate reminded Denise to open the windows and turn off the air conditioning to save some money. Now, this is January, but we're talking Sarasota area, so it's more like spring in pretty much anywhere else in the U.S. in the low to mid-70s. So you might not need your air conditioning, except the humidity there is like a billion percent. So people run their AC even when it's not that hot just to cut that humidity. But when you're a young family, barely making your bills every month, you want to keep that electric bill down. So Denise told him, don't worry, the windows were actually already open. She already thought about it. After lunch, Denise went on the back porch to give her two-year-old son a haircut. Around this time, which is between 1 and 2 in the afternoon, a woman named Jennifer Eckert was watching TV at the house next door to Denise. The way she was looking at the TV, she could also see out the front window, and she noticed a green Camaro driving down the road really slowly. That's what made it stand out to her as it was going so slow. So she noticed it go by the first time, and then another, and then a third time, and it kept circling the street upwards of five times. Jennifer got up, went out on the front porch just to see what was going on. She assumed the driver was probably lost and was looking for a house. Maybe she could guide him in the right direction. But while she's on the porch, the car comes down the street, but it pulls into the driveway of the house next door where Denise Lee was home alone with her little boys. Jennifer assumed, okay, well, he found where he was going, and she went back inside. It was about 10 or 15 minutes later, she went back outside and saw the Camaro leaving. It's estimated to be around 2.30 in the afternoon at this point. Nate got off work around 3 p.m., and as he headed home, he called Denise to let her know he was on his way. She didn't pick up, which was really unusual. She hadn't told him she was going anywhere, so after the phone rang through, he went ahead and called back. Maybe she just didn't get to the phone in time. Well, she didn't answer again, so he hung up and called back again. He called her eight times in the 25 minutes it took him to drive home. So that tells you how unusual it was for her not to pick up when he called on his way home. Nate told Dateline in June 2008 about what he saw when he got home. So the first thing he noticed was how hot the house was. All of the windows were closed, even though Denise had told him they were open earlier. But with the windows closed, the AC hadn't been turned back on, and the windows weren't latched. Had Denise closed the windows, she would have latched them. That's just how they did it in their house. And she would have turned on the AC. That would have been the only reason to have closed all the windows. He walked through the house. In one of the bedrooms, he found both of the boys together in one crib. And this was not how they took naps. They did not take naps together in the same crib. You have a two-year-old and a six-month-old. He didn't know to be gentle with the baby. So Denise would not have put him in there with the baby. So he got the kids out of the crib and walked through the house, and Denise was nowhere. So he called 911 just around 3.30 p.m. So this is right after he got home. He knew if the 
boys were home alone, Denise did not leave the house for fun because she had never and would never leave her boys home alone. Unless there was some type of incredibly desperate emergency or she wasn't leaving of her own free will. And when Nate saw her keys, purse, and cell phone all at the house, he knew it was probably the latter. She did not leave willingly. The 911 call gives us information because they walk him through some things. Was there any money missing? Were there signs of forced entry? And Nate said Denise missing was the only sign anything was wrong. After he gave all the information to 911, he hung up and called Denise's father, Rick Goff. Rick wasn't just Denise's father, he was also a police sergeant in the neighboring county. Being a police officer, he could imagine scenarios of how this would be handled. He was worried that perhaps the responding officer would just brush this off. Okay, your wife went to the grocery store without telling you. This isn't a missing persons report. Or they would take it seriously, but they would look at Nate, the husband. He knows as a police officer, you look at the husband. But Rick knew straight away, one, Denise wouldn't have just walked off like that. And two, Nate wouldn't have had anything to do with anything. So he really wanted them to focus on looking for Denise and not on interrogating Nate or brushing it off as, uh, I'm sure she'll call later. And to the Sarasota County Police credit, they did not do either of these things. They pulled out all the stops. And Rick's law enforcement, where he worked in the other county, they offered their services, tracking dogs. Um, They got their helicopter in the air, all of it. They got it all to Sarasota County, who were leading the investigation. So while that's being coordinated, investigators were at Denise's house talking to Nate and checking out the scene. So roughly around 4 p.m., Detective Chris Morales is doing a walk through the house. He checked out the kids. Everything seemed fine in the house. There were no signs of a break-in or a struggle like Nate had said. The kids didn't have any marks on them or any bruises like they had been restrained or roughly handled. None of that. It just looked like they had been put in the crib and that's it. So Detective Morales starts doing the knock and talk of the neighborhood and he didn't go very far before he got some pretty good information. He went next door and Jennifer Eckert told him about the green Camaro she saw that it was driving slowly through the neighborhood, that it was in the Lee's driveway for 10 to 15 minutes. And she even gave a very good description of the car and said it was wearing something called a car bra, which is a stretchy piece of black vinyl that you attach to the front of the car. Now, it's meant to protect the car from rocks and road debris that'll kick up. And so it protects the bumper and the undersides of the fender and up on the hood a little bit. Personally, I don't buy cars that cost enough to require that I protect them from wear and tear like this. But someone driving a green Camaro that's his pride and joy might have one of these. So we're already looking for a fairly distinct vehicle. 
But Jennifer had more. She could even describe the driver because they actually made eye contact after he pulled into the Lee's driveway. So 5 p.m., an hour and a half after Nate came home to find Denise missing, authorities issued a bolo, a be on the lookout, for a green Camaro with a black car bra on the front being driven by a white man in his mid to late 30s. Between 5.30 and 6, this white man and his car were seen, unfortunately not by police. It was by the driver's own cousin. So Michael King, the driver of that green Camaro, showed up at the house of his cousin Harold Muxlow. He told Harold that his riding lawnmower was out of gas and stuck in a ditch in his yard. He asked if he could borrow a flashlight, a gas can, and a shovel. Harold got the items and gave them to Michael, who then got in his car to leave. Harold was heading back into his house when he heard a woman's voice say, call the cops. He whipped around, as you would, and went over to Michael's car. He asked Michael what was going on, and according to the court documents, Michael said, quote, nothing, don't worry about it. So for some reason, Harold decided not to worry about it, and he started back towards his house again. But something in his head is kind of clicking. This is weird. Something's going on. So he turned around again. This time he saw Michael reaching from the front seat into the back seat. Harold saw the head of someone with shoulder-length hair pop up right before Michael pushed them back down, and then he saw a knee come up before Michael turned around in the driver's seat and drove off. Still apparently unsure if he should worry about this, Harold did not call the police. He later said that Michael often had drama with girlfriends, and that's what he thought this must be. That's not exactly my favorite excuse ever. Thinking that he was abusing a girlfriend and not a stranger, that's not a great reason not to call the police. Domestic violence is not girlfriend drama. It's violence. Anyway, Harold did have a minimum amount of concern here, and he drove over to Michael's house. To me, it sounds like he figured he'd go over there, he'd see the lawnmower in the ditch, he'd see Michael trying to get it out, and then he would know that whatever was happening wasn't a big deal. But when he got there... There was no stuck lawnmower in the yard, and there was no Michael. So Harold went home, he picked up the phone, and he called not the police. He called his daughter Sabrina. She lived with her mother, and Harold was pretty upset about what he saw. Again, not upset enough to call the police, but he did call his daughter. So around the same time that Harold was calling his daughter to tell her what he saw, we're talking 6.14 p.m., we have a call to 911. This time, the call is from Denise herself. Somehow, Denise had gotten Michael's cell phone and dialed 911. Because I'm sure it's pretty obvious, Denise was the woman who had yelled to Harold to call the police. Denise was trying to give information to the 911 dispatcher, while also not letting Michael know she had his phone. 
At some point, Michael does realize his phone is missing because you can hear him on the 911 call yelling about where his phone is. The call lasts six and a half minutes, and it is incredibly upsetting. But it's also amazing to think of how clever and cool Denise was playing it. She can hear the 911 operator asking her questions, and she has to pose all of her answers as though she's talking to Michael so he won't catch on. Early on in the call, they're trying to confirm this is Denise. The case had already been in the news within the hours after Denise went missing, so there was always the chance this was a hoax. We hate to think about that, but it does happen. So the dispatcher is asking her things to identify herself. And one of the things that the dispatcher asked was, what is her address? And you can hear Denise ask Michael if he could take her home to her house on Latour, which is, of course, the street she lived on. So she was able to answer the dispatcher with Michael having no idea that she was talking to somebody else. We also know this is Denise because they were able to get voice confirmation from her father. The most upsetting part about this call, of course, is hearing her asking Michael to let her go. So after six and a half minutes, the call cuts out. And within minutes of that, another 911 call comes in. And this time, it was from Harold's daughter, Sabrina. So this is 6.23 p.m. She was calling to report what her father told her. She didn't really know her dad's cousin. She actually first gives his name wrong. She gives the name of his brother. But then she corrects herself and says, no, it was Michael King. She said her dad wanted to remain anonymous. But she gave his rough address, like the neighborhood where he lived, and it was just four miles from Denise's home. So here they're hearing the name Michael King, but they had just gotten this information because they traced the number Denise called 911 from, and it came back as registered to Michael King. We have two pieces confirming the identity of Denise's abductor. It didn't take long for police to be staking out Michael's house and patrolling the neighborhood where Harold lived. They were actually patrolling the entire area pretty aggressively. They tried to use GPS to track his phone, but this was one of those old cheap flip phones, and so it didn't have GPS tracking. They used cell phone pings, but all that did was confirm that Michael was still in the area. Seven minutes after Sabrina made her 911 call, the next one came in. A woman named Jane Kowalski was at a red light when she heard a scream come from the car stopped next to her at the light. She heard the scream, so she looks over and she saw the driver reach back like he was pushing something down in the back seat. And then she saw a hand come up and smack the window a couple of times. The car was a dark-colored Camaro, but she couldn't be sure of the color because the sun had set, so she did not recognize it as a green Camaro. But Jane knew immediately something was wrong, and her first inclination was that this was a child abduction. 
she had been driving through the area to go visit someone, so she hadn't watched the news. She didn't know about Denise being kidnapped. She tried to hang back when the light turned green so that this car would go in front of her. She could get behind it. And then she could get the license plate. She could follow the car. She could see what was going on. So she called 911 so that she could do all of this while on the call with 911. The driver, though, saw her when she looked over when she heard the scream. So he just sat there at the green light and wasn't moving. So she pretty much had no choice but to go ahead and pull ahead. And he pulled behind her. She was keeping an eye on the car through her mirror for several minutes while on the phone with 911. And then suddenly the car turned left and headed toward the interstate. She reported all of this to the 911 operator in real time. After he turned, she even tried to get over a few lanes to see if she could turn around and follow him. But because of the traffic, she just could not get over and turn around in time to catch up to him. This is the 911 call where we have a major issue. We know where Michael King is within a live Denise Lee. The 911 call, however, connected to an operator in Charlotte County, Florida, not Sarasota County. So, of course, Sarasota County is the one with jurisdiction. They're the ones actively looking for Denise. But the tip went to Charlotte County and the ball got dropped there. The operator who took the call did make the connection between this sighting of a Camaro and the kidnapping of Denise. So it's not as though they didn't think it was a big deal. They knew what they were receiving. However, the operator did not log the tip into the computer the way it is usually done, which we've all seen on TV a million times. That's what they do. They type the tip and the information as the person is talking and as they're asking questions. But she didn't do that. In the urgency, she was instead shouting to the dispatchers, who we do know heard the operator. They're answering some of her questions. Her thought process was, I'll tell the dispatchers immediately so they can dispatch the police faster rather than waiting for me to keep typing this tip, waiting for it to come through the computer. So as she's yelling to them, giving them information, she's assuming they are dispatching it to the police. So the operator did not log the tip correctly. When the call was finished, the police dispatchers who were supposed to be talking to the police officers and coordinating responses didn't send the tip out. Apparently, each dispatcher thought the other one did it. And because it wasn't in the computer, no one realized that it didn't get sent out. There were four patrol cars within a mile of this sighting who could have responded. An investigation showed that the tip was entered into the computer 12 minutes later. Even if they did dispatch it then, the car was headed for the highway. So 12 minutes at highway speeds is 12 miles away easily. So this was a vital real-time tip that got lost in the shuffle. Let's move to the last 911 call that came in at 6.50 p.m. Harold, 
who must not have known his daughter already called his tip in to 911, finally decided to call the police. His conscience got the best of him. He still wanted to remain anonymous, so he went to a payphone, and he reported what happened between him and his cousin. So things are pretty hectic over the next few hours with lots of units out on patrol looking for Denise, but there were no more 911 calls or tips coming in. They had a car description, they had a license plate number, they had photographs of Denise and Michael, and they had now two confirmed areas they were in, but they couldn't find them. We find out later that there were other witnesses who saw something odd, but either didn't entirely know what they were seeing, knowing that they should call 911, or some of them knew they were seeing something off, but avoided getting involved. Two hours and 20 minutes after the last 911 call, a sheriff's deputy and a state trooper were watching an area near the highway when they saw the Camaro come up on the road and get onto the on-ramp for I-75. Knowing this was it, they stopped the car and ordered Michael out at gunpoint. Michael refused to get out, until the officer basically threatened to shoot him if he didn't. Michael decided it was best to comply at this point, but he did a really odd thing. He turned around, so he was facing the passenger seat, and he got out of the car backwards. He even leaned a bit over the console onto the passenger seat in order to back out of his car. Police don't really like it when they can't see someone's hands or when they appear to be reaching over a seat like this, like they're grabbing something, but they still managed to take him into custody without incident. But we're left asking, why was he in that weird position? There is speculation that he was throwing something out the passenger window, possibly a piece of evidence and throwing it into the tall grass on the side of the road. That area was not searched until after a mowing company or some kind of public services came through and mowed and cleaned up the area. So whatever was there could have been destroyed. I mean, for all we know, it was just a bag of weed, but the issue is it could have been something more significant and it was lost evidence because the area wasn't searched fast enough. But right now, police have the car and they have Michael, but they don't have Denise. She was not in the car with him. She is still missing. Michael's jeans and shoes were soaking wet, and his shoes were caked in mud. So they told the search teams where they were and that they needed to look for somewhere fairly nearby that was wet and muddy. It's unlikely Denise was too far from this area because it seems like Michael never really left this area. All the sightings of him are not that far from Denise's home. The problem is there are a lot of wet and muddy places in the Sarasota metro area and beyond. This is Florida. They did keep the air search going The helicopter diverted to fan out from where Michael was stopped, but around 11 p.m. they had to call it off 
because the fog was just too thick and they couldn't get their searchlights to hit the ground. So meanwhile, they have Michael King and he is telling a bizarre story to the investigators. He claimed he was also a victim. The same person who kidnapped Denise had actually kidnapped him. But he can't tell them where this kidnapper left Denise because he had a hood over his head at the time, but that the kidnapper did let Michael go. Investigators didn't tell Michael what they already knew, what Harold had already said. They didn't tell him any of that. They towed his car to be processed while they let him lead them around town as he tries to recreate this kidnapping that he was the victim of. They already had people out there searching for Denise, so they thought Michael might give something away if they played along with his victim act a little bit. But the more he told them where to go, the more obvious it became that he didn't know where they were anymore. He was just directing them randomly around. So they put him in an interrogation room in the overnight hours back at the station, and he invoked his Miranda rights. He was going to remain silent, and he wanted a lawyer. They decided to send his cousin Harold into the room to talk to him while they just kind of kept an eye and ear on it from outside the room. And this seemed to get Michael willing to tell a little bit more about his kidnapping story. Because, yes, Michael was still telling Harold the story about how he was the victim. Even though he knew Harold saw him that day, saw him without another man with him, and saw him with someone who yelled, call the police. Personally, I don't think he was trying to convince Harold the story was true, so much as he was trying to let Harold know what his cover story was. Harold was not interested in helping Michael cover for anything. He was more concerned about helping find Denise, so he played along to see what Michael would say. Michael said that he pulled over to help someone who was broken down on the side of the road, which is when he was grabbed, the hood was placed over his head, and he was attacked. Harold said to Michael that he wished he had slipped him a note or said something quietly when he was at his house so he could have gotten help. And Michael said that the man told him that he'd let both of them go if they just did what he said. Harold pushed him a little bit, saying they really just need to find Denise. Michael kept insisting that if they found Denise, he would be cleared. But nothing he said gave away anything about Denise's location. They talked until about five in the morning when Harold finally left the police station with no more evidence than when he went in there. At this point, the Camaro was being processed and it was a treasure trove of evidence. A cell phone with the battery and SIM card removed was found on the floor. So to me, it sounds like he knew about Denise's 911 call and didn't know if he could be tracked. So he tried to remove the battery and the SIM card. There was also a gas can from Harold's house in the passenger seat. In the back seat was a blanket and a ring, and the ring belonged to Denise. There was a muddy shovel in the back. It was the same shovel that Harold had given Michael. And there was a palm print that was eventually matched to Denise 
found on one of the car windows. There was also a ton of what looked like blood evidence, and they took samples of all of it from inside and outside the car, and they sent that to be tested at the DNA lab. So Michael is in jail charged with the kidnapping. It would be upgraded to a murder charge once they were sure Denise had been killed. It was possible she had been stashed somewhere. She was not at Michael's house. They searched his house and she wasn't there. But they did find some long hairs that looked like hers. They collected more forensic evidence to send out for testing. The search for Denise was massive. They knew if she was alive and stashed somewhere, they had to find her fast. They also needed to know if she had been murdered so that they could charge Michael and get justice for her. It took about 24 hours after Michael had been caught for Denise's body to be found. On the night of Friday, January 18th, a civilian searcher with a search and rescue dog came across some disturbed earth. She also noticed what looked like blood near two areas where sand had been piled up. When investigators got to the scene, they noticed the sand was consistent with sand that was found in Michael's car tires. Because of how the sand had absorbed the blood from underneath, they think these two piles of sand were purposely made to mask blood evidence. But they couldn't fully excavate the spot until the morning. They very likely wanted to do it right away, but they didn't want to miss any evidence due to the darkness. So they waited till the sun came up, and one thing they found is something they may have missed if they did this excavation in the dark. What they saw were scallop marks in the dirt that were consistent with a round-nosed shovel similar to the one that Michael borrowed from his cousin. They excavated down three feet when they found Denise's body. There was water at the bottom of the grave, so it seems like Michael just dug as far as he could before he hit the water table. The cause of death was pretty obvious on site, though it would later be confirmed on autopsy. It was a gunshot wound to the head. Denise was nude, and she was lying on her side in the fetal position. A search of the immediate area makes it look like she was very possibly killed right there. There was a 9mm shell casing found in the grass nearby. Also in the vicinity was the clothing Denise was very likely wearing. The shirt was her shirt. The pair of boxers were her husband's boxers that she would sometimes wear around the house like a regular pair of shorts. So let's get to the forensic evidence that came back from the lab. The hair from Michael's house, the long hairs, they were on duct tape that was in the trash, and that matched Denise. Most of the DNA was found in and on the Camaro. There was that blanket in the back seat. It had the DNA of two people mixed. And the report said that the major contributor was Denise and that Michael King couldn't be excluded as the other contributor. More of Denise's hair was found inside and outside of the car. It linked to Denise one in 10 trillion. The blanket had her blood on it that matched one to nine trillion. 
There was other blood that matched Denise, and there was an odd substance on the bra of the car referred to in the court documents as sap-like. It matched Denise's DNA. They tested the boxer shorts that they believed Denise had been wearing, and they were positive for semen. And raise your hand if you're surprised to hear it matched Michael King. So we have DNA saying that Denise was in the car. We have DNA on her clothing that matches Michael King. There is DNA, blood and a sap-like substance, and Denise's hair on the front of the car. It's believed she was outside of the car when she was murdered. So they have Michael dead to rights, as they like to say, on Law & Order. He did it. Everyone knows he did it. The forensic evidence, the witness statements, the circumstantial evidence, it's all just a huge neon sign pointing at him. This is Florida, and they were going for the death penalty in this case. So it's pretty obvious that Michael is going to have a very difficult time mounting a defense. He might have been persuaded to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence rather than the death penalty, but the state wasn't offering that. So Michael's options were to plead guilty and probably get the death penalty or just go to trial and take his chances with the jury. And that's what he decided to do. So the trial occurred in August 2009, a year and a half after the murder. I'm not going to go through the mountain of evidence that the state buried Michael under again. We pretty much covered it. We're just going to talk about the defense. They decided to take a swing at an alternative suspect, a man named Robert Salvador. Robert and Michael were sort of friends. They both worked in the same basic field with Robert being a self-employed handyman and Michael was a plumber. They met when they were working on the same house one day and Michael was able to recommend Robert for jobs. And so Robert felt this was a good networking connection since he was self-employed. So he and Michael were kind of surface co-worker friends. On the day of the murder, the two of them decided to go to a local shooting range around noon. They were there about an hour, and Michael was shooting a 9 millimeter handgun. But Michael hadn't brought any ammunition with him. Robert also brought a 9 millimeter to the range that day, so he let Michael use his ammunition. This was the same size bullet believed to be what killed Denise, but they don't know for sure. A casing was found at the scene for a 9mm, so they were leaning towards that because the actual projectile part of the bullet was never found, and the murder weapon was never found. So they really just had to rely on the size of the gunshot wound. The difference in size between a 9mm and a 38 would be undetectable based on wound size. We're talking the bullets are within 0.002 inches in diameter of each other. They're very close to the same size. Now, investigators were leaning towards the 9mm because that's the shell casing at the scene. But they don't know 100% that that shell casing is the one from the murder. It could have been there from something else. 
So the murder weapon could have been a 38, but it was probably a 9 millimeter. That's why this talk about 9 millimeters is very important, but it also still leaves the possibility that it wasn't a 9 millimeter. But what Robert's really doing is putting a 9 millimeter gun in Michael's hand that day, and that's pretty significant. During the investigation, police did question Robert. He did not mention that he was with Michael at noon on the day of the murder. He said, much like Harold, he thought this was some type of domestic dispute and didn't want to get involved. But also like Harold, his conscience kind of got to him, so he called the police the next day to give them the whole story. He took investigators to the gun range to show them which stall they had been firing from. And they were able to confirm that what Robert said was true. They were together because gun ranges make you sign in. And you see Robert's name followed by Michael's right next to each other. The investigators collected 47 shell casings from the area around the stall that hadn't been cleaned up yet. And three of the casings matched the same tool marks from the casing at the murder scene. So now they're connecting the ammunition used to what Michael was firing earlier that day. But the defense jumped on this because, one, Robert didn't tell police he was with Michael to start with. And that seems like he's distancing himself from the incident. Now, these tool mark matching casings... That means it was his ammunition. By his own admission, Michael didn't have any ammunition, and he was using Robert's. When Robert left, he did not see Michael take or keep any bullets. He thought he had the entire box intact with him. Now, of course, the prosecution is saying maybe his gun was still loaded, maybe he pocketed a few bullets. After all, he only used one to kill Denise. But the defense is saying maybe the reason it's Robert's ammunition and Robert didn't want police to know he was with Michael is because Robert is the one who shot Denise. And it seems to me like the defense knew they can't argue Michael's innocence on the kidnapping charge. There were too many witnesses. He couldn't argue the rape charge since his semen was found. So they were going to just fight the murder charge. That's the death penalty charge. These other charges, he can't get the death penalty for them. So they're focusing on this murder charge and they're trying to raise reasonable doubt. They're saying that maybe Robert was there too and maybe he's the one who pulled the trigger. And maybe they could have gotten somewhere with this theory if there was one single solitary witness who saw Michael with another man during the time period he had Denise. Multiple witnesses saw the car. Multiple witnesses only saw Michael in the car. If one of those witnesses said, yeah, it was two men sitting in the front seat of the car, if one witness said that, he would have had a chance. So in the least surprising verdict of the century, Michael King was convicted on all counts, the murder, the abduction, and the sexual battery. 
Something we don't learn at trial, and we've never learned, is how Michael King found Denise and why he targeted her. There was a witness who came forward during the investigation saying that he saw both Denise and Michael in line at the post office the afternoon she went missing, but before Michael King was seen in the neighborhood. So the thought here is that he stalked her from the post office to her house. However, checks showed Denise hadn't been to the post office. This was a mistaken sighting. But we do have to ask, was Michael stalking her? Had he seen her somewhere and started following her? He did have a pattern of stalking in his past. Though these were not complete strangers, these were generally women he had been romantically involved with. Or is this a case of him honestly just seeing her through the window as he was driving around? The slow driving, going up and down the street multiple times, it definitely makes it sound like he was looking for someone. So one theory is that he was hunting. He was looking for a house to invade and possibly rape the woman inside. So whether he forced Denise to leave the house or she pushed him to leave the house to get him away from her children, it really is a toss-up. Michael King isn't talking, so we don't know. After he's found guilty, we're moving to the penalty phase. In 2009 in Florida, what would happen is the jury would hear the evidence. They would make a recommendation for death penalty or life without parole. But the ultimate decision was up to the judge. In 2016, the Florida Supreme Court made a massive ruling that changed this. Now the death penalty can only be handed down if a jury unanimously recommends it. One person on that jury votes against the death penalty, a judge cannot impose it. But that was not the case at this time. It was ultimately up to the judge. During this part of the trial, Denise's family, they were allowed to give their impact statements. And then Michael's defense team was allowed to present what is called mitigating factors, factors that would make him less culpable for what he did. These can be anything from an abusive childhood to mental illness to a head injury. I mean, a lot of things can come in here. Michael's defense team brought in an expert who did a PET scan on Michael's brain. A PET scan is an imaging test that shows how an organ is functioning. And this expert said Michael suffered from abnormal brain activity in his frontal lobe. Of all the damaged areas you can have in your brain, frontal lobe is a pretty serious one. Your frontal lobe deals with emotional expression, it deals with language, judgment, sexual behaviors, problem solving. It's kind of a control panel when you look at what decisions we make throughout the day. It's the home of our personality, It's largely the part of the brain that makes us who we are, part of the brain that makes us human. Michael did have a traumatic brain injury when he was six years old when he was in a sledding accident. And this expert is saying that impacted his frontal lobe largely enough to mitigate the crime he committed. And Michael did have physical symptoms of this TBI. He had a buzzing sound in his head. He had headaches. These were documented. He showed a lot of the behavioral symptoms. 
He had difficulty regulating his impulses and aggression. He took excessive risks. He had poor judgment. He had learning difficulties. And an interesting symptom that was noted in the court documents is that people with this type of TBI have what is called a blunted affect. And that's something pretty much everyone said about Michael. Even people that just met him in passing, that he seemed very cold, like there was nothing behind his eyes. He actually creeped people out by how flat his affect was. They also argued that he was showing signs of paranoia at this point in his life. He thought people were looking in his windows. He was paranoid about being watched and followed, which is, I don't know, like grimly ironic, seeing as that's what he did to Denise. They said this was all from stress. He was having relationship issues. He was facing bankruptcy and homelessness. And so they were arguing that this paranoia, this stress, this impact on his mental health also mitigated his culpability. The state brought in their own expert to basically just disagree with the defense expert. He said that, one, the defense expert was wrong, that those with frontal lobe damage don't have that flat or blunted affect. They actually have an inappropriate affect, largely owing to their impulsiveness. He said that after evaluating Michael, he didn't believe that any head injury or mental health concern was enough to make it so that he could not comply with the laws of Florida not to kill people. Also, an interesting Florida thing that has been since struck down is Florida used the IQ of 70 as a cutoff of whether someone was intellectually able to understand their crimes. And the defense presented Michael King's IQ as 74, which would put him really close to that line. This rule's been struck down, but at the time, an IQ of above 70 actually disqualified a defendant from being spared execution on the basis of intellectual disability. But they were basically saying, okay, he's kind of on the line here. There is a margin of error with IQ tests. His could actually be closer to 70. But the state's expert said his IQ was actually higher. It was probably in the low 80s, which would put him on the low end of average. The jury sided with the state's expert and unanimously recommended death And on December 4th, 2009, 38-year-old Michael King was officially sentenced to death. Now he has an automatic right to appeal, and his direct appeal, which if you remember from previous episodes, this appeal is the one that deals only with the trial proceedings. That was denied in February 2012. I read the whole document. It's a lot of grasping at straws, so I'm not going to really go into it too much. Michael is currently sitting on death row. If he does any post-conviction relief hearings, if he looks for new evidence, he's not going to find any because he obviously did this. So I think his best bet would be to look at things like his IQ, his TBI, look at options as far as appealing based on that. But all of that information was available at his sentencing, so I don't know how much it will help him unless he gets some very clever lawyers. So this entire ordeal has been 
horrific for Denise's family. They lost her. They lost her violently. That's obviously the worst part. But then they found out about that 911 call that was never dispatched, and they were completely blindsided. The only reason that call even came out, that they even learned about it, is because the caller saw Michael King's picture on the news and called the police saying she assumed they wanted to talk to her. But because Sarasota County hadn't gotten the report, they didn't know to even talk to her. The family wouldn't have learned about this call if the caller, Jane, hadn't come forward. You might think, as the sheriff's department does, that we can't possibly know if we would have seen a different outcome had the 911 call been dispatched properly. Police were all over that area already, and they didn't see the Camaro, so they may have missed him in the time Jane knew where he was and was giving updates. I disagree with that. This wasn't a minute, two minutes, three minutes. Jane was on the call for nine minutes. Nine minutes with Michael King behind her car. She was giving cross streets, travel direction, everything for nine minutes. So I can't imagine a scenario where, had the units in the area been dispatched to the locations Jane was feeding 911, that Denise would still have been murdered. We know Denise was alive at this point, and they are getting real-time information. They are literally getting someone pinpointing Michael King's movements for nine minutes. And we're supposed to believe they couldn't have gotten someone over there in time. I think Denise could have been saved. Jane tried to save her. 911 dispatch screwed up, bottom line. The operator who took the call was counseled on proper procedure The dispatchers were both suspended for a few days. One was suspended, I think, five days. The other got three. And they had to take some training courses. But that was all that happened with them. I believe all three of them are now working in different fields, but it wasn't because they were fired over this. The family wasn't done, though. They sued the sheriff's department for wrongful death for the handling of this 911 call. And in 2012, it was settled for $1.25 million. After legal fees, they split the money evenly between four interested parties, Nathan, each of the boys, and then Denise's parents collectively. So in the end, each party got about 200000 But even before suing and before having this money, Nathan knew he had to do something in Denise's honor. And he created the Denise Amber Lee Foundation just six months after her murder. He and public safety experts travel the country to train 911 dispatchers and students. They use Denise's case as an example. Whenever I hear a family is doing this sort of thing, I'm in awe of their strength. It's like Retea Parsons' parents. They go to schools to talk about consent and suicide and all the things they had to face with the loss of their daughter. They have to relive parts of her story every single time they speak. Yet somehow they find the strength to keep doing it because it matters to them that it doesn't happen to anyone else. I have a hard time emotionally advocating for cases and for people when I have emotional distance. Do you know how many parts of the Tina Fontaine episode 
I had to re-record because I got too choked up. That actually happens in a lot of episodes. Yet these families are out there making a change, reliving these traumas in the hopes that it's not going to happen to anyone else. Nathan always tries to end his presentations on an upbeat note because no one appreciates a good 911 operator and a dispatcher more than Nathan Lee. He's not out there railing against the people who dropped the ball here. He's basically saying to these students and to these dispatchers, your job is hard. You aren't trained enough. You aren't getting the support you need, and I'm here to help. He is 100% on the side of the dispatchers who he trains and who he speaks to, 100%. Beyond doing these presentations, he also has taken on an advocacy role. In Florida specifically, they passed a mandatory training and certification standard, which included 232 hours of training and passing a certification test. I looked up how much training time is usually given, and it's more like 40 hours. So in Florida, 911 dispatchers are given significantly more training than in many other jurisdictions because there's no national model for this. There's not even a state model in many states. They don't have state requirements. It's up to the municipalities to decide how they hire their 911 operators and dispatchers and how much training they get. There are several national and state-level certifications that 911 dispatchers can get, but it isn't always required. I looked up 911 dispatch jobs in my area, and you need to complete a training course, pass a typing test, and have a high school diploma or equivalent. You do not need a specific 911 emergency response certification. The state of Missouri has stricter guidelines to be a registered interior designer than we have for 911 professionals. And we need to do better. We are putting people in highly charged, emotional jobs they may not be prepared for. That is not fair to them. No one shows up at the dispatch center hoping they screw up or they lose their temper or they act snippy with a caller. That's not why they're there. They need the tools to do better. I certainly don't think those who took Jane's 911 call about seeing Michael King are happy with how it played out, and they're going to have to live with that. To learn more about the Denise Amber Lee Foundation and how you can help, including how you can donate or contact them to come to your area, go to deniseamberlee.org. That's deniseamberlee.org. The link will be in the show notes. 